When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello. And welcome to Awesome Etiquette, where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on tipping overseas tour guides, when it's appropriate to bring a plus one, drifting apart from friends, and connecting with clients on LinkedIn. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, our question of the week is about photobombing at a wedding. Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript on defining places at the table from Margaret Visser's The Rituals of Dinner. All that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And it is so good to be with you, Lizzie Post. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. It's really good to be with you, too. Um, I feel super energized this week because I did my first live in-person event in two years. <laughs> hey, congratulations. How'd it go? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It went really well. It, it Honestly, it couldn't have gone better. The Seagrass Dispensary in Salem, Massachusetts, invited me down to do a book talk and discussion on higher etiquette. And it was it was so great to be in that zone again. And they were because they were so hospitable. It was like everyone that I met was so nice. Everyone who was a part of the Seagrass team was so helpful and accommodating. I felt very taken care of by my hosts. Like they were excellent, excellent hosts. And like, I don't know if, if you've had this experience or you might have heard about this experience that sometimes people can be really intimidated walking into a dispensary. Often you're checking IDs. It's a very formalized process because they really have to track every person that just even approaches or walks into the venue. And what was really cool was that I, I walk in and the very first thing I am greeted with is two giant smiles, big welcomes, very casual and relaxed presentation of the procedures they had to follow. It was like, it was just so A plus hosting. I was like really impressed. And the dance begins. I I'm and curious. And the dance begins. Yes. Totally. Were you a well-behaved guest, Lizzie Post? I think I was. I mean, I tried to be very gracious and, and thankful and to, to, to comment on how impressed I was with everything, whether it was the decor and the layout of the space or the people that I was meeting or the convert. Like I relayed some of the conversations I had with some of the staff to one of the managers managers because they were great conversations. The staff was like so well informed and enthusiastic and 
participating. You know, sometimes in a retail environment, people can kind of just be like, next customer. And it was just not like that at all when I was there. It was really, really, really fabulous. I have to say, though, because first, like, so I did my first plane trip to go visit my parents earlier in the month of April. And this was my first, like, hotel stay. I was more weirded out by the hotel stay than I thought I would be. I was definitely like, um, as I was trying to sleep and it may have been because I had coffee later in the afternoon and I don't, you know me, I am not the coffee drinker between the two of us. So I was up late and every little noise in the hotel was really like, I kept thinking someone was trying to use their key on my door, not necessarily to get into my room, but because it was like an accident, you know, like they're trying their key card and the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was like every little noise I was really aware of. So that was that was kind of a new new and I don't know as you travel in the next couple of weeks for your own <laughs> own first live person events like you'll have to tell me what were some of the little things that you had to get used to like I I probably checked the room 15 times and then checked my bag even down in the lobby cuz I was so worried I had forgotten something <laughs> Sure a little social anxiety or coffee jitters. It's amazing how <laughs> similar those two feelings can be, right? Oh, totally, totally. But it was um, really great to be, quote unquote, out on the road and um, and with people and talking about etiquette and talking about how it impacts our lives and the way that we can be our best selves was it was so invigorating. I re- I really loved it. Um, I hope I'll get a chance to work with that particular dispensary again. But it just got me excited about events and and doing things in person again and more yeah. of that return to normal that we've all been either experiencing or longing for. <laughs> I would be insane with jealousy if I weren't headed out for a couple live <laughs> events next week because it is it's there is such a a quality to that in-person experience and mm-hmm. particularly with what we do I was talking to someone earlier this week on a a video conference a, a video presentation and beforehand I was talking to the organizers and mm-hmm. they were asking me they were saying is it hard to do this work in this medium are, are you looking forward to being with people we'd love to get you out here in the future <laughs> totally. and I was as honest as I could be and in that moment I was saying yeah no it is really difficult and there is something yeah. really special particularly when you're talking about human relationship and connection to mm-hmm. being in that space with people it's not just something you learn or know, but it's something that you practice. It's something you experience with people. And really having that experience is is so rich. And it's something that I've been missing for yeah. two years now. So I could see there being a lot of emotions around... <laughs> having that experience for the first time. Well, I hope it is when it, when you go next week, there's a very fulfilling experience because that's, that's what I think overall I've walked away with it from is I feel very filled up, which is nice. It's really nice. <laughs> well, it's something that I'm seeing all around me in my, my personal life as well. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm watching the social communities that I've been a part of for years. I wouldn't say come back to life because they've been here, but but return, yeah. return to that, that sort of a more dynamic in-person quality. And yeah. I, I see smiles on people's faces. Maybe it's just springtime, but I, I also think it's a, a, a larger springtime that we're getting to experience together, which is <laughs> just awesome. It's respringing of life. <laughs> well, to get super cheesy with this, do you think we should spring into some questions? 
Oh, I do. Let's (laughs) do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just remember, use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question is titled Tips on Tours. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I love the podcast. As a London tour guide who often does Downton Abbey tours, I love how I can discuss modern etiquette in relation to society from another era. You have also improved my etiquette in ways I hadn't thought about before. Thank you so much. As a tour guide, I finish my time with clients by saying thank you for allowing me to be part of your vacation. I often receive tips at the end of a tour. This is always appreciated, and I am always humbled when I receive one. I offer a warm thank you, look into their eyes, and accept with appreciation. I say, this is so kind of you. Thank you. With the pandemic, I wondered if cash tips would go away, and I have had a PayPal account for a while for other business purposes. I now have a QR code on hand and my PayPal on a link on my Instagram in case it is needed. There are two situations that I face. One, sometimes I receive emails that say, we forgot to tip you and would like to show our appreciation for your amazing tour. 
Currently, I reply with an email thanking them for their kind words and that if they wish, they can use my PayPal info with a gentle note that also encourages them to leave a review in lieu of a tip. Is this right? It happened this week and the client was most generous with a PayPal tip and left a lovely note as well. My second question. Despite my worry about no cash, I'm finding cash tips are still a thing. Believe it or not, tourists will ask if I can make change for them so they can tip me. They will have a 20-pound or 10-pound note in their hand and want to give me a 10- or 5-pound note. If I have been tipped by others on the tour, I make the change, while feeling very uncomfortable about it because pickpockets often watch people with cash. However, occasionally this happens when no one has tipped. Since the pandemic, I don't carry cash. Am I required to carry cash for this situation? If I have none, could I offer them a business card with info on how to leave a review instead? Sometimes reviews are worth more than money, but mortgages don't accept five-star reviews either. A few other things to note. We don't have Venmo in the UK. I have accepted cash from all over the world. Not all clients have the PayPal app installed. And unlike some guides, I never solicit tips. Yours sincerely, can you break this for me? Oh, can you break this for me? Thank you so much for the question. I, I just have to start with where you began, which is Downton Abbey tours in London. <laughs> I mean, could, could anything be more of an etiquette picture? I'm picturing double-decker red buses and people dressed up or, or at least visiting fancy estates. That just sounds like so much fun. I hope that our paths cross someday. I know. I'm thinking like, I really want to make sure that I reach out to this listener if we ever get to go to England for anything. <laughs> the other thing I have to mention about the way you began is you talk about appreciating both what you've learned from the show being about relating etiquette from another time to today and mm -hmm. that you've learned some new things that you didn't even expect. And that just warms my heart. It is so Lizzie Post and my intention for this show to both be about connecting etiquette to the past. We love the tradition that we're a part of and all the traditions that we're all a part of. And we also think that etiquette is a, a living, breathing thing that mm -hmm. that really, I think, is surprising when people examine it in their own lives and in the moment. So I'm, I'm just so glad the show is working for you like that. As far as your question goes, it sounds like there's a lot of really good etiquette going on here. I love yeah. your sample scripts <laughs> for your, your your conclusion with people. I love the gratitude that you show people for their time. And I love the escalation of that gratitude if someone tips you. And that is a, a lovely exchange. It's part of the travel advice that we have in our new mm -hmm. book mm -hmm. to be ready for tipping when you travel. There are all kinds of occasions where... When we're on the road, people are doing things for us and a, a really nice way to show your appreciation as a guest, as a visitor, is to be ready to tip. I think that ties in a little bit to the answer to your second question, which I want to start with, if that's okay with you, Lizzie Post. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Let's start. Start. We'll work our way backwards. Start Start at the end. <laughs> so you, you ask about essentially making change for tips and having the ability to make change for tips. And so often we're giving the advice the other way. We're advising travelers to be ready to carry some, some cash, some small bills. And I, I can see that being 
advice that's more necessary after a pandemic where people were using less cash but it was even true before the pandemic as mm -hmm. people leaned and leaned into and relied on credit cards and electronic transfers more and more fewer and fewer people are carrying cash and it's a great tip for travelers to have a little bit of cash on hand so you can tip with cash and I think that the same advice applies to someone receiving tips. I think it's a good idea to think about ways that you can have a little bit of cash on you safely, mm -hmm. that you can manage discreetly and easily. Maybe there's a, a, a safe pocket you can keep it in. Maybe there's a, a way you can organize that money in the safe pocket so you can pull out exactly what you need without thumbing through a bunch of bills. Um, out in the open. You, yeah, totally. <laughs> but that it's, it's not a requirement. It's not an obligation, but like so much of good etiquette, it's an opportunity to make that exchange a little bit easier for people to make it more likely to happen. And that's probably something we're thinking about. Because one way that you could do something like that is to to keep your bills in different pockets. So you might keep some of those. Uh, I, I, do they have one pound notes? But the, the smaller smaller bills, we'll say, in in one pocket, and those are the ones that you might uh, reach to to make make that change. And then as you're accepting the tips, putting those larger bills that you're making change with into a different pocket might be one way to help that. And so that you're not flashing like 50s, 20s, 10s going by, but more so just a, a couple of fives and ones that you're pulling out and, and working out of, or like a 10, a couple of fives and a couple of ones. Um, it might just make that that kind of wad of cash look a little less enticing to someone who might be curious about it and looking on. But I think it is so absolutely common to both be in a position where you have to make change and also potentially in a position where you're out of the change you've been able to make, even if you brought your own kind of little change bankroll for the day. And that's why I, I don't think it's bad at all to suggest the, the PayPal link as a potential option or to, to say, Oh, you know, I'm out of change right now. But if you are interested or if it is helpful, you know, I do have a QR code or a, a, a link on a card that I could give you so that you could tip later if you wanted to. And then even in that verbal exchange, adding on the piece about the review, or I'll tell you what, a really nice review is always incredibly helpful. And I love the fact that our question asker, can you make change, um, has, has, has already positioned themselves to say or with this, that it's already something that they do, that it's not like, can you give me a, or, um, here's how to give me a tip and could you leave a review, but, or a review is great too. And I think it is really nice to say that. It kind of gives people that option, but I think more often than not, you'll end up with the situation that you just had where the customer both, or the person who attended the tour, both leaves the tip and a review. And I think that that's a great way to get that kind of double whammy result. But positioning it as an or, I think, is is very um, tactful and thoughtful. And you know, Dan, even as I'm saying this or, I am noticing that the language that, that our question asker has used is in lieu of a tip, which is even a little more strongly towards the idea that that it's you could do the tip One or, or this. The other. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so you could soften it to the or, or you could keep that in lieu of. But either way, what I really like is that there's a presentation of it that isn't connecting it with just an and, you know, that, that would almost seem like 
they're offering to do something and you're tacking something else they could do on top of it, the way the in lieu or the or works, it presents it as another option. And it's just such a bonus if the people choose both options. I like the way you're thinking about this. As I was thinking about the email reply, I was saying to myself, is it awkward to reply to a note of thanks asking for a tip? And I don't think it is, particularly when we get the sample script that mentions the tip in that initial email. Yeah, and. I think when someone says, we forgot to tip, they open the door for you yes. to reply with some information about tipping. And I think giving people a couple different options is kind. I like the idea of the QR code. I like the idea of the PayPal link. Mm-hmm. If you've got that information attached to a TripAdvisor profile or something that 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 makes it easy where it's easy for you to, to to put all that information where people can link out from it. I think those are all really good strategies or tactics if someone just sends you a note thanking you i think that is also the end of the exchange that there is no reply to a thank you note you don't thank for a thank you note it it goes on forever yeah you could i mean you could say i'm so glad you had a good time or something like that so that it's not just like a, a a message to you that has absolutely no reply but you're right you don't have to make the thank you go on forever <laughs> there's one other thing that can you break this for me mentioned that i that jumped out at me. And that was the mm-hmm. idea of having some sort of business card or some sort of information available that you could hand someone that's that's physical right in the moment. Yeah. And I just really like that idea so much. I think it's a, a great practice to think about. And obviously, if you're working for a tour company or if you're working within an organization, you want to be sure that whatever you're doing conforms or fits within their expectations mm-hmm. of the people that are giving those tours. But if you've got the opportunity to Give someone your contact information. I think it's a great way to start to build relationships. Who knows how that could develop over time? Oftentimes people are looking for tour guides or people to guide them on future trips. And it's also a great place to include that information. I I like the idea of having the QR code maybe right on that business card or maybe having that PayPal information right there as well. So the card serves a couple of different functions. It becomes a business card with contact information and also some information on tipping. I think that's I think that's a really good idea and another way to approach this this moment and this situation. Can you break this for me? Thank you so much for the question. It's fun to think about London in the springtime. It's fun to think about people tipping and exchanging gratitude. And we're really glad that you're enjoying the show and hope that our advice helps. Good manners, social graces, etiquette, call it what you will, all are based on consideration for others. Being kind to the other fellow in the little things of life, as well as the big things. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Our next question is titled Solo, but not single. Dear Dan and Lizzie, hello from a listener that's been with you since the dinner party download days. Oh, wow. Thanks to you and your awesome team for keeping conversations about consideration, respect, and honesty a part of my weekly routine. 
As we further emerge from the pandemic, I find myself seeking advice for social gatherings. Because of my leadership role at a local nonprofit, I am often invited to both formal and informal gatherings important for networking. My partner works in a totally different industry and works during the evening and on weekends when nearly all of these events take place and thus cannot attend with me. I am more than happy and at ease to attend on my own as a gracious guest and equally happy, when appropriate, to bring my best friend as a plus one. But what cues should I be aware of to know which options are appropriate? Moreover, if someone were to invite my partner and I to a dinner party and only I can attend, is it okay for me to do so or should I only accept the invitation if we can both make it? I want to stay active in my community, but I also want to be sure I'm honoring a host's intended invitation. Thanks for your insight and your great work all these years. Solo, but not single. Solo, but not single. I think this is a really smart question to be asking and to make really short work of it first, and then we can expand into it. I think that a really quick indicator of whether it's okay to substitute out your partner for someone else is has the invitation been issued to you and your partner specifically, or was it issued to you with a plus one? And being in a couple, it's often that people will automatically issue it to a known established couple. If you're married, it's even more common that it will be issued to you as, as you, the two individuals in the couple and not receiving a plus one the way Someone like myself, a known single person, would receive a, an invitation that has a plus one. And so I think that one way to very quickly establish it is is who is the invitation addressed to. Beyond that, I think that there are events where it's much more common to be able to call up a host and ask if you could have a substitute quote unquote date for the evening, you know, and bring someone along with you. And like, if I invited Dan and Pooja over for dinner one night and Pooja either didn't want to attend or wasn't able to attend, I could totally see Dan picking up the phone, calling me and being like, Hey, Pooja can't come, but Jesse Ritvo is around and free for the night. Would it be cool if I invited him? And I would probably give some kind of answer. Like, I can't believe I didn't invite him to begin with. Um, but, you know, I think that you're going to know those close relationships and those dinner party invitations where it feels like you could ask the question of could you substitute your your usual partner for a different partner. Um, and I think that's a really great way to handle it. I think the more formal the occasion, the more distant you are from the host, the less you want to ask about a particular substitution. Dan, what do you think? What other points can we add to this? I think that makes a lot of sense. I think really thinking specifically and particularly about your relationship to the host is mm -hmm. definitely where I would begin as well. There's that larger point of etiquette that you don't, as a matter of course, ask hosts to modify guest lists for you. You don't ask mm -hmm. to bring extra people. You don't ask to sub people out. And I, I hear an awareness of that in the way this question is asked. Yeah. And just want to be explicit about about acknowledging that that's the that's the game we're playing. We're aware of that expectation that you don't do it, but it's just so practical and reasonable to do it in so many situations. The question is where is it okay to break the rules? Mm -hmm. And I think one of those situations is the one that you're talking about where you know the person well enough where if the response was no, actually his ex is going to be here that night, it wouldn't be such a good idea. <laughs> 
<laughs> that, that would be an easy conversation example. between the two of you. And if that's an easy conversation, that makes the ask much easier. If mm-hmm. you feel like they would have a hard time saying no to your request to change a guest list, I think that's where I would start to say to myself, oh, I might not ask to make that substitution. Mm-hmm. I think that there's much less sort of uh, potential for problem accepting as a solo person when you've been invited as a couple. I think oh, that absolutely. part of the yeah. equation is is relatively easy. Oh, so-and-so can't make it, but I would love to come. Mm-hmm. And if there's a problem with that, which I really can't imagine there being, that Me would too. give someone a chance to to reply and, and say so. Oh, you know, we're actually planning this game that's all couples and it's going to be role plays. <laughs> and do you if have a plus one you there, could bring? It'll be a problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's that kind of situation. It's the only thing I can imagine where there would be that kind of response. I'm also thinking about the, the other end of the spectrum and mm. less one that has to do with formality, but more that has to do with the event not being so personal. I'm thinking about bigger corporate events, larger gatherings yeah. where the intent and the idea is really to get a lot of people there. And what they really care about is you being there and they've invited your spouse as a, as a courtesy, as good etiquette. Mm-hmm. But th- there isn't really a they who's even evaluating the social dynamic of the room. And mm-hmm. it would be completely fine to to bring someone other than your, your partner or your spouse. And you could definitely check with the host. You could reply in a way that, that asks, that doesn't just mm-hmm. assume it, where you're not just doing it because you think it's going to be okay. But where I think there's very low cost, it's a low stakes ask, and you're very likely to get a yes. The place where I would start to say, oh, maybe maybe that wouldn't be as appropriate is a wedding. And I'm thinking about places where the guest list is much more carefully managed. So it's not just mm-hmm. the size of the event. It's really the nature of the event as well. But I do think that with a willingness to navigate a little bit of gray area between those two things, you can figure out which is which. And it's it's probably a safe ask. I think so, too. Right. Like if it's a a wedding for your cousin who you're really close with and your partner can't come, that's one where you might you might have enough rapport together where you could say like, hey, could I could I bring my best friend instead? Like, you, you know, or or something like that. Like it's someone that the the person might know and and maybe even wanted to invite but couldn't because people like your partner needed to be invited or something like that. You know what I mean? But if it was a wedding where I didn't know the people getting married as well or as closely, and I mean pretty closely to be able to ask in that particular situation, that's one where I would just, I would just let it go. And as you mentioned with the dinner parties, just show up solo and, and be fine with that. I like your description of the gray area and you'll know based on the formality, the type of event and your closeness to either the honorees of the event or the hosts of the event or both that will help you gauge that gray area. And if it could be any help thinking about making that call, ask yourself, is the person putting together this guest list someone who's likely to be wrestling with the question of whether or not to offer singles or solo attendees plus ones? Yeah. So if it's a wedding where you're saying to yourself, you know, the plus ones, not everyone got a plus one. That mm-hmm. might be a situation where you don't ask to do a substitution. But yeah. if it's an event where probably most of the the potential solo attendees were given the option of bringing someone, it's probably a pretty safe bet to think about asking if you can sub out uh, a partner or a spouse for someone else that you'd like to go with. 
Solo but not single, this question has definitely gotten me excited about future invitations and getting back into socializing and navigating those wonderful host guest dances. Thank you so much for the question, and we hope our answer helps. Will you enjoy this special evening among your friends? Will you really have a good time? Or will you be a little unsure, a little uncertain about the right thing to do and the right time to do it? Our next question is titled, Couples Conflict. Hello, Lizzie and Daniel. My wife and I had been friends with another couple for a few years. We got together occasionally, and since both our circles were somewhat small, both couples considered us to be relatively close. Over time, my wife and I became more aware that there was a gap in our mutual interests and sensibilities, and getting together, for us anyway, became more arduous rather than enjoyable. We had always known we were on opposite poles politically, and we mutually agreed to not talk politics when together. This quote-unquote rule was violated occasionally by the other couple. Once COVID-19 entered our lives, however, that gap grew much wider, and we made the decision to not visit them at all due to their refusal to take what we believed were the necessary precautions while in our company and just overall. Gradually, we found other friends with whom we shared common worldviews, and frankly, just lost interest in this couple. Several months after no communication, one party of the other couple sent me a text, which I found inappropriate, so I didn't respond. This was followed up by another text a week or so later, demanding, rather rudely, an explanation for my silence. My question is, when friends grow apart due to these kinds of circumstances— Does the couple abandoning the relationship owe the other any explanation if replying honestly would only result in more texts and other unpleasant repercussions? Thank you. Sincerely, Anonymous. Tough one. This is a tough one. Anonymous, thank you for the question. And I think what makes it so tough is that breaking up is hard to do. It is. Especially in friendships. It is. And there are obvious parallels between a romantic breakup and a friendship breakup and mm-hmm. i i can't help my mind goes straight to the desire that some people have for closure and i'll put that in quotes as a relationship ends they want to process a breakup they want to know why they want to understand the reasons and that's such a natural human impulse and at the same time on the other side of the equation if someone is initiating a breakup there's a real art to finding out exactly how much you want to share or should share because Mm -hmm. nobody wants to sit around and listen to all the reasons why you don't want to be friends with them anymore. You don't want to be romantically involved with them anymore. And it's just, it's a real art to giving the relationship, the honor that it's due. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, not really hurting someone at the same time. And sometimes that hurt is unavoidable because breaking up doesn't always feel good to everybody involved. So one of the guidelines that we use for breakups is that you think about the relationship itself and you use Mm -hmm. that as your guide for how much responsibility you have in terms of explaining yourself in a breakup and giving someone else a chance to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. With friendships, that's oftentimes a little bit easier because there's been less definition around the relationship to begin with. So Mm -hmm. less work is required to break that down as you exit it. I think it's entirely appropriate the way you've began this, where you've 
just allowed the space to grow between yeah. these these this couple and yourself and this friendship. Dan, I totally agree. There are lots of friendships, especially during the pandemic, that kind of just drifted apart naturally. And yeah. and that can happen so easily. And uh, sometimes when both parties let it happen, it's like mutual ghosting has worked. You know, Dan, you've been a fan of that phrase, the mutual ghosting one. But it's very hard when someone kind of pops back in and is like going, hey, what's going on here? You know, and and, and really confronts the issue. It really is. And I want to break down the, the, the exchanges, the text exchanges that follow yeah. this. Okay. When someone reaches out to you after a while, I think usually the expectation would be that you do some sort of reply, that you might not you know, indicate further future actions, or you might not open up the discussion in a way that it's ongoing, but usually you would give some kind of reply. But if that text is inappropriate, if it's and, – and we don't know exactly what the nature of that inappropriate right. text was, sometimes the best option is that you ignore it or that you let it go, that it's yeah. easier and better to do that than to engage in a way that doesn't respect yourself or doesn't honor some boundaries that you've drawn with somebody quite clearly. When they then follow up later demanding some sort of reply or indicating that they were hurt – Mm -hmm. That puts you in a tough situation. To me, that's where I, I start to get that image of the person who really wants closure and really wants to talk with you about why this breakup is happening. And it puts you in a position of having to decide exactly how much information you're going to share. But I do think it's advisable to engage and, and offer them something for the sake of the, the, the harmony of the community. You've mentioned that this couple moves in social circles that you're a part of, or that there are things that connect you to them in terms of the community that you operate in. So figuring out a way to, to soften this breakup a little bit is probably in everybody's interest. Dan, one way that you, you could handle this one for exactly the reason that you just stated that there, there might be times when you're going to run into this couple and maybe announcing like, hey, I'm really done with our friendship. That's why I didn't respond, <laughs> like isn't the way to go. One thing I've heard you share before, Dan, is that you could just address the text message itself. And you could say, you know, I didn't respond to that text message because I found it inappropriate and I wasn't able to craft a response I felt confident in. And so I just didn't respond. I'm really hoping that we, no, maybe even stop there. And so I just didn't respond. Leave it there. That's me like wanting to go into even more explanation. Like, you know, I'm hoping we don't have conversations like this in the future or we, we agreed not to talk about these things if it was one of the subjects you'd agreed not to talk about. But I think stop yourself there like, like I did and just I didn't respond because I didn't feel comfortable having whatever this message was sent to me and I didn't know how to respond appropriately. So I didn't say anything. And I think leaving it at that gives an explanation for what happened. It doesn't guarantee that you're not going to get pestered with more questions or more um, aggression coming from the other side. But I think it does clearly address what they are asking, which is an explanation for the silence. Yeah. A, k a kind word turns away wrath or something like yeah. that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think one of the advantages of 
keeping the focus on the exchange itself and not the broader friendship issue is that I think there's a pretty solid course of action for dissolving the friendship moving forward. And Mm -hmm. that's that you have a lot of control over whether or not you accept invitations to participate in things socially Mm -hmm. and who you initiate invitations to, to participate with socially. So looking forward, there's nothing that forces you to continue to associate with this couple. And by just doing those two things consistently in an ongoing way, this friendship's not going to have much of a venue to continue. It doesn't sound like they're excellent texters or long-term communicators. So by just right. allowing those social connections to to break over time, I think you can be free of the friendship in the ways that you'd want to be. And probably still manage those moments if you do cross paths with them at larger community events or or larger social gatherings with those friends that do cross over with them. It might just sort of be that that soft exit that's unspoken and and you just it's just kind of gone after a while and you recognize that you run into each other from time to time. But no, you're not going to accept their invitation to do something and that that's become clear at this point. If you are the type of person who either feels better confronting the issue or feels like they they need to experience the clarity of that more definitive, we aren't interested in hanging out anymore. I think there is room for that conversation. I think it's a hard conversation to have, and I would not expect the other person receiving it to receive it well all the time. Um, we often say even sometimes when you're de- delivering an apology, um, something someone might want, it's not always going to be received well. And I think keeping that in mind, if you do decide to confront the issue directly and say something more along the lines of, you know, I don't know, Jillian, it's pretty clear that we have different views and we are at a point where we aren't comfortable getting together anymore. And I'm sorry that it's come to this, but I'd I'd rather be honest and clear um, than to just ignore texts or ignore invitations and things like that. And I hope I hope you can understand. And that's you know, I, I don't think it's ideal. I think it's a possibility. And it may be a possibility you have to resort to if the message of turning down invitations or or not responding to uncomfortable text messages doesn't come through. Lizzie Post, something else that this question makes me think of is something that we talk about on the show a lot, which is how you talk about potentially really controversial subjects and topics with people in ways that don't jeopardize relationships. And this is just such a reminder to me about the social costs of failing to observe those etiquette guidelines that even mm-hmm. if you love to talk politics, even if you love to argue about politics or disagree about politics or engage with people who have different views than you, that when you do those things, you've really got to be careful and you've got to have your social antenna out because oftentimes the impact on the other side is one where someone just wants to get distance from you where Mm -hmm. they're just not interested in it, or it causes them to make judgments about you and your value systems or what's important to you and the ways you choose to share those things that that they just don't want to be a part of. And that's a reasonable decision for someone else to make. And I think it's a, a really good caution for all of us as we think about navigating a world that is oftentimes very polarized and polarizing that mm-hmm. while these things are important, it's important that we are able to engage with them, that we take care with the social relationships in our life, because there there can be consequences to that, that, that might not be the ones we anticipate. 
Dan, it's a it's a great reminder to pay attention to those tiers of conversation and and take the temperature of the room as you're talking about things, as opposed to just like being stoked to talk about the thing you want to talk about um, is a is a really good point. Anonymous, it is a very tough situation that you are in, and we truly hope that our answer helps to give you some options for being able to engage and handle it in a way that you can feel confident and move forward from. Well, Johnny's rude and selfish. He doesn't think of others. He won't take turns. And he always seems to be mad at somebody, always shouting or bossing us around. You don't think he really wants to be that way, do you? Our next question is titled, New to Networking. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I hope this finds you well and that you're having a great week. I love listening to Awesome Etiquette as a boost of positivity in my day. My question relates to business etiquette. I'm in my mid-20s and have started in a new role as a project manager. I am meeting so many amazing people, both coworkers and clients. One of the things I find myself grappling with is knowing when it is appropriate to connect on LinkedIn with clients. The people I get to know are phenomenal in their fields and have so many unique experiences. As someone just starting out in this space, I find myself wanting to build my network, but don't want to betray confidentiality. I've been limiting invitations to clients to where I see another coworker has already added them, but wonder if there is an easier way to go about this. Thanks for all you do to make the world a little brighter. Best, new to networking. New to networking. It's funny. I was just telling Dan recently that I feel like my LinkedIn life has kicked in and engaged heavily. Like all of us, it's like an, you know, just social media app I don't use often. And it's like we have a presence there and everything. We, we, I feel like through engaging it more through Emily Post social media, so it's I feel like I've been getting more ticks just on my own account there. And it's been really interesting to see the connections that pop up was actually able to utilize a connection when um, a, like through a friend. It was it was really interesting to see how all of a sudden I've like dived into LinkedIn in a different way. People are popping up everywhere. But I think it's really, really smart in these spaces to be aware of the types of connections that you are making. And while this platform is definitely designed for you to basically cold call, introduce yourself to someone, it is like, it's perfectly appropriate to reach out to people who are in similar industries as you, who are people that you find very interesting and, and ask to follow them or ask to be connected to them. You might not always get a reply, um, or, or a yes, but it is the exact space where it is appropriate to approach people in this way. It was designed to do just that, be a really big searchable database for all kinds of fields and industries and, and getting connected to people and companies that you would like to be connected connected to. I get a lot of um, LinkedIn uh, requests from people who run various podcasting networks or who are in advice industries or who do certain entertainment work. It's it's really interesting to see who pops up and says, oh, 
Emily Post and this person at Emily Post could be a really great connection to make. Let's just see what happens. And I think that keeping that spirit alive as you think about your LinkedIn navigation is really great. But I also want to give you big etiquette kudos for considering how your actions and interactions on something like LinkedIn might impact your colleagues and their relationships with their clients. And sort of moving into the more advicey part of this, I think that a really good place to start is probably to check with a manager or a higher up about if they have any thoughts on LinkedIn practices and good practices at this particular company. Dan, I'm imagining that there are some industries, especially ones where you're very much so based on like commissions where you don't want to be seen as like poaching someone's clients or trying to piggyback on their clients. They are public networks and being aware of your behavior on public networks is always a really smart thing to do. And you're right, Lizzie. Sometimes it's a a question about poaching a client or moving in on someone's space, or sometimes it might be a confidentiality question. I don't know Uh, what type of client work new to networking does, but if it's very consistent that you're connecting with people you work with and clients that you've worked with, people who are observing your network or who might happen to see your network might learn something about someone based on them being connected to you. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Lizzie, as you said, LinkedIn is a really big network. People use it for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different ways. And your client doesn't have to say yes to your request. If they accept that connection, they're participating in that public linking that thing that might be observable to other people. So it's not like you're forcing that on anyone. It's a pretty low stakes ask. And I, I like where you started with with it, Lizzie, thinking about it as a tool that, that you really have some latitude, particularly professionally in terms of how you're using. Yeah. But I also love that idea of particularly when you're talking about relationships with clients, checking in with someone, a manager, a supervisor. I think that's some of the the best advice that we could give. I like the way new to networking is watching colleagues and seeing what they do. That's another, another really good way to figure out what the norms are in an organization. I like your thinking about the potential of poaching clients, again, depending on, on, on what the nature of that client relationship is. So that watching coworkers or colleagues might not always be perfect as a solution. The one other thing that I would put on the table is if you have an opportunity, you can always ask the people that you are hoping to connect with. It's not always possible, but oftentimes people will say, Oh, are you on LinkedIn? I'd love to connect with you there. And when you get someone's permission in the real world over email or face to face or over the phone, I think it both makes it entirely appropriate to make that ask on the network, but also more likely that they're going to accept that request. Absolutely. Absolutely. New to networking, I love that you experience awesome etiquette as a little bit of positivity in your day. That brightens my day just a little bit to hear. (laughs) It sounds like you're doing great in your new job. Keep it up. Keep building those networks. You never know where they're going to take you in the future. We hope our answer helps. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or you can reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your social media post so that we know you want your question on the show.
If you enjoy Awesome Etiquette, consider becoming a part of the Awesome Etiquette community on Patreon. You can find out more by visiting us at patreon.com slash awesomeetiquette. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content. Plus, you'll feel great knowing that you help to keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already sustaining members, thank you so much for your support. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today we have more feedback on episode 376, the question about sneaking in. Today we hear from Mark. Hi guys, love the show. I say it depends on the situation. And this would be whether or not you allow someone to slip in behind you through a security door that requires a right. badge to access. Right. If someone is known to you as an employee and there's no issue for management or security, it's fine. Your turn will come up running late or with your hands full. Many years ago, I worked in a precious metals refinery. As you can imagine, security was tight, similar to today's TSA screening. The unwritten rule of thumb was someone known is okay. Anyone unknown? Absolutely not. Slam the door on them. <laughs> security can handle them easier in a public space. Once inside, security procedures would be seen and the robbery potential could go up. A simple, sorry, I don't know you, and stopping them was fine for us. We did direct them to the phone that was often already ringing with security wanting to talk with them. Everything was on video and manned. Sometimes I'd mention the phone if walking in with what appeared to be a possible new client to help with the company image. Something like, hello, first time here? Then you will need to pick up the phone on the right when it rings for entry. Or, that's for you. <laughs> Love the show. Thanks for keeping me busy at work behind the secure doors of the sewer treatment plant. Smile. <laughs> nice. Mark, thank you so much for that feedback. I really appreciate both the perspective and the humor that you delivered it with. Thank you so much. Indeed. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next question, feedback, or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment, where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to talk about our place at the table. This comes from Margaret Visser's Rituals of Dinner, pages 210 and 211, where she discusses moving from a common pot-style meal to having your own plate and everything that came with that for the place setting. And our dear Emily gets a reference. Ooh! <laughs> All right. Margaret Visser begins. Helpings. We no longer eat from a common dish, but are each served or each take a portion on a plate. Seated upright on our separate chairs, we keep elbows in and hands off anybody else's dish. It was once a friendly gesture to give fellow diners choice morsels from our plates or from serving dishes set near us on the table, or for the host to express esteem for particular guests by passing them special delicacies. It is now permissible only when there is considerable intimacy for fellow diners to give each other quote-unquote tastes from their plates. Correct behavior guarantees the absolute sovereignty of every diner over his or her domain, the individual plate in its designated quote-unquote place, 
an area of the table safely bordered by its metal implements and impermeable to incursions from without, except for supplies and replenishments of food as permission for these is given. The place at formal dinners, still, is never permitted to stand empty. On entering the dining room, and nowadays on entering many an expensive restaurant, the prospective diner finds a place plate, sometimes also called a charger, and upon it a napkin filling the area of the place. If there is no place plate, a compromise may be made by having the napkin alone fill this space. A place plate is often elaborate. It never has to submit to scraping and scrubbing, for it is never used for actual eating. It has no function but to ensure that the designated area does not lie empty. It will be removed when food is brought in. As each succeeding course is finished and the dishes are taken away, a clean place plate should always fill every place until the next course arrives. Quote, a plate with food on it can never be exchanged for a plate that has had food on it. A clean one must come between, end quote. It is as though these patches of bare tablecloth cry out to be filled like guests who must not be left unsatisfied lest they become, quote unquote, demanding and a source of future trouble. A place is not a place at a formal dinner without its plate. Formal etiquette is said to require that when a very correct diner eats alone, four places should be laid at one at each of the table's four sides and four even at a round table. Emily Post's 1928 edition shows a picture of such a table laid for a lady of the house lunching alone. The objects customarily found on the dining room table at meals, such as places laid for other people or side plates even when no bread and butter is being served, are often necessary to a diner's sense of well-being. An extreme example of this principle was the decision of the Igbo of Nigeria in the 19th century, made in a time of famine so serious that no cocoyam fufu was available and the people had to content themselves with soup. At the left-hand side of each diner, where comforting balls of fufu would have been heaped up when people could eat their fill, a pile of stones was placed instead, and the soup was eaten with spoons since there was no food to dip into the bowl. In 1922, Emily Post suggested to Americans that hosts who could not provide wine set out at least two wine glasses and, quote-unquote, pour something pinkish or yellowish into them, so that appearances at least would live up to expectations. Dan, I could go on about this forever because Margaret Visser then goes into uh, 14th century Europe where there were no covers or place settings, and she starts talking about goblets that are that are standing in on the table. I mean, it's it's just wonderful, and even the platters, which she then refers to as also called chargers, might be brought out, and it's it's just fascinating to see. But I love the idea of once we defined individual spaces at the table. 
that that became so important that even Emily Post in multiple editions of Etiquette was suggesting that you set kind of blank places at the table, even though they will go unused. I mean, it, it cracks me up today because I don't, I don't think I would do this dining alone in my home, but I'm, I'm, I'm smiling at the thought of Emily recommending that to people. We often talk about the durability of table manners, how yeah. slow they are to change. So when I love how Visser's examining a moment of change when we started to yeah. get our own plates of food, when we weren't sh- just spooning out of these communal dishes in quite the same way. And then the the routines that that establishes, because it is a significant change. And then the implications yeah. of that change are that, well, we set up everyone with their own place, even if everyone's not present. And <laughs> we structure our, our place in a way that defines it, that even if there's no food on it, there's some sort of receptacle that could hold food theoretically if it were there <laughs> although it does make the the charger or the place plate sound just totally ornamental doesn't it <laughs> well it's an aesthetic consideration but we also talk about how important aesthetics are at the table and yeah. uh, who knows maybe it's it's the process of digestion begins when you smell food. Maybe it begins when you sit down and you see when that you you've see got your it. own place <laughs> at the table. That that's the the beginning of a whole process of eating that that <laughs> that is aesthetic as well as as practical or physical or gross. Even the most important moment, though, of this entire reading happened very close to the start, Lizzie. Mm, what, what what was that? What did you observe? When Margaret Visser agreed with me and said, you and Pooge need to keep your forks off my plate. <laughs> <laughs> the sharing of food. Oh, my goodness. Oh my. Pooge and I are just old school. We're just old school, Cousin Dan. We're just old school. <laughs> or the end of that sentence, unless you know the people so well. <laughs> and you could say to me, the oh, intimacy. we're close the enough. Intimacy. You we're can give enough. me your favorite bite. <laughs> no, I can't. And Dan with his steak knife is sitting there guarding his food. No, um, that's hysterical. Well spotted, cousin. Well spotted. <laughs> it also, Dan, all of it reminded me of the, the pass that we just did, the editing pass on the book and, and coming across that section on the charger and in our advice at this point in time for 2022, we talk about that charger staying throughout the meal up until the main course. And then once your main course plate, which is just a little bit smaller than the charger, but it, it is the biggest plate you will eat off of. Once that one arrives, you actually, the, the, the charger is removed with the last course before that particular uh, main course is, is laid in front of the, the diner. So that's kind of the way that we do things today, but it's really cool to hear, hear about it and also hear about other elements like the stones and things that could take the same kind of sentiment of, of keeping the, the setting full, even if the food isn't there to do so. I thought that was a really interesting point too. Well, thank you, Lizzie Post. And thank you, Margaret Visser. It is always such a treat to return to the rituals of dinner. Like everyone else, she thinks that her etiquette is perhaps not perfect, but good enough so that there are no glaring errors. The main thing is that they should enjoy each other's company. They know that the object of correct etiquette is not to make life formal and dull, but to make it fully enjoyable. We 
we'd like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we have a salute from Aaron in Ontario. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. I hope you and the entire Awesome Etiquette team are well. I'm a longtime listener, although I did fall quite far behind during the pandemic, as I no longer had my commute act as my podcast time. I wanted to give an etiquette salute to my coworker, Andrew's daughter. I overheard an exchange between Andrew and another coworker, Nestor, yesterday, as Andrew was about to head home. During the pandemic, Andrew had been quite stressed and upset while working from home, and his seven-year-old daughter had taken to drawing him pictures on a regular basis to cheer him up. Not only did this lovely child keep up with drawing pictures for her father for two years to make her father smile— his home office is now plastered with drawings. But when we all returned to the office, she asked Andrew how Nestor was doing. Andrew told her that Nestor was rather stressed these days, and sure enough, she then drew a picture for Nestor for Andrew to bring into work and asked him to promise to give it to Nestor. I have rarely seen such compassion and kindness from a seven-year-old, least of all shown consistently over the course of a couple of very stressful years. The entire exchange has had me smiling for over a day. Thank you, Lizzie and Dan, for such a wonderful podcast. I am looking forward to catching up on all the episodes I missed soon. Warmly, Aaron from Ontario. Oh, gosh, Dan, this just has me. I feel like I'm going to be smiling all the way through Sunday with this one. This is so incredibly sweet. I just love this salute. Two years, a drawing a day. I'm imagining a room with essentially wallpaper. This, yes, like, this children's drawings. <laughs> it could just be kind of spectacular. Oh, I just love it. Aaron, thank you so much for this salute. And thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something and who supports us on Patreon. Please do connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, however you like to share podcasts. You can send us questions, feedback, and your salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, you can leave us a message or send us a text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we're at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member. You can find out more about this by visiting patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. It helps our show ranking, which helps more people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. And Bridget.